Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Adam Biles, on his new novel, Beasts of England. Adam Biles is an English writer and translator based in Paris. He is literary director at Shakespeare and Company, from where he hosts their weekly podcast. Adam is also now the author of a novel, Beasts of England, which we are going to be talking about today. Adam, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello, thank you for having me on. So first of all, then, I guess, tell us how you would describe this novel. I guess the simplest way to describe it, the I guess the elevator pitch would be a sequel to Animal Farm, which was how I conceived it in the first place, to be honest, um, in a slightly in retrospect, slightly cynical way. Back in 2019, I was having a discussion with another writer friend and the fact that Orwell was coming out of copyright came up. And as two writers who never really made much money with their writing before, we started um, speculating about ways we might mine this this suddenly available legacy for commercial gain. And um, so, you know, all the usual ideas came up, 1985, um, the Aspidistra is still flying, that kind of stuff. And then I mentioned a sequel to Animal Farm and didn't think much more of it at that moment. But as with a lot of ideas, it just stuck and I couldn't really get rid of it. And so then it was in early 2020. Uh, and I was I was in Paris. I was cut off from my family, obviously, because of the, the COVID pandemic. Um, I was also, uh, my daughter was only two or three months old. And this idea was still kicking around my head. And I suddenly thought, well, what would that mean in today's day and age, a sequel to Animal Farm? Would it be possible to distill a lot of the problems of what I saw in contemporary politics in, in the UK, but also around the world into this kind of farmyard setting? That, uh, that Orwell had created. So that was, um, I guess that was the, the challenge and the kind of the puzzle I had to try and unpick as a novelist was whether this, this literary form that Orwell had used, this, this allegorical setting that he had created would bear the strain of, of all the different things that were going awry in our world at that time. And um, I've just had on the show Sandra Newman, who yeah. has done a similar thing with um, with 1984, her book, Julia, as I know you have on the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Mm. Sandra was also just recently on there, of course. And I, I want to ask a question that I asked her as well here, because, I mean, you've just mentioned the whole thing about the copyright, and I talked to, to Sandra about that. But I said that 
there's always been a sort of a, a history of these sequels to classic novels mm. or, you know, I mean, they, there even exists fan fiction, which which does a similar thing. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of it is really, really bad. <laughs> there's a lot of these novels. Again, I said this in the in, interview, for, you know, for every wide Sargasso Sea, there's like a hundred bad versions of this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So when you're approaching a project like this, how do you avoid that? What are the sort of the pitfalls there are to writing a sequel? equal to uh, such a beloved novel. I knew right away what I wanted to avoid, which was a kind of I don't know what you might call a kind of um, spitting image version of the of the book or you know those kind of columns. I don't mean to disparage them, but you often get um towards the end of the year when some columnist or other will do their sort of oh, what is the news from the end of 2024 and it will be it's sort of it's often very glib and often very pat and often making the the same kind of you know just just kind of tired old jokes essentially uh, and i was determined that it couldn't be that kind of book and so i realized the only way that therefore that i could approach it and perhaps come close to achieving what i wanted to achieve with it was not only to borrow orwell's setting if you like but also to borrow his approach because i think of any writer I can think of, like, well, there are very few writers I can think of who have such a moral approach to writing as George Orwell. And when I say moral, I don't mean that he he wanted to convey a particular moral, because actually I think sometimes it can be a little bit difficult in some of his work to unpick exactly what the moral of the work is, but that his his approach in itself embodied a certain set of moral beliefs. So his um, his ideas around language and the clarity of language and the way that language can be uh, manipulated in order to to obfuscate things. It seems to be sort of core to his moral approach. So I thought, okay, it's so in one sense, you know, you could see this as a parody and it could sort of quite quickly go down the route of being a sort of a bad imitation of Orwell. But if I can try and tack as close to that approach, that moral approach as possible in, in my own way, of course, um, then perhaps I could avoid some of the the pitfalls that you mentioned. It does also feel stylistically like animal farm though again mm. very much it feels like although again julia was very much a you know it took place at exactly the same time as 1984 it was just yeah. told from julia's perspective this is a sequel to animal farm but as you mentioned at the beginning it's looking at contemporary politics mm. whereas you know animal farm was obviously looking at politics contemporary to when it was to when it was written yeah um but so bearing that in mind how do you how do you get the sort of stylistic feel of Animal Farm down? I think it was very important to me to channel something of the the clarity of Orwell's writing, uh, particularly in the early drafts, because I think, again, that feeds back into his his kind of moral approach, if you like, that's a sort of the less clear something is, the more likely it is that other people will be able to use it for, um, for um, nefarious ends. And I say that very conscious of the fact that Orwell has been claimed by pretty much every side of the political debate over the last over the last seventy or eighty years. So, so perhaps he didn't quite um, he didn't quite avoid that. So, I wanted to to channel that a little bit, and particularly at the start, there are a few sentences which very closely mirror the opening sentences of of Animal Farm, and that was kind of my way into it. So, using you know as, as clear language as possible, using as many Anglo-Saxon words as possible, as opposed to Latinate words. I mean, you can't, you know, English is obviously, it's a kind of bastard language, so you can't avoid Latinate words entirely, but preferring the Anglo-Saxon word over the Latin word, because 
that tends to give a kind of a clarity and also a kind of earthiness, which Orwell's book had, and I hope my book has too. And yet, I was surprised actually when I went back to Animal Farm of quite how, how to put this without sounding so insulting, quite how staid a lot of it was, I think. Like it's actually, it's quite a, it's quite a grim book. It's quite a gray book. And it's a very serious feeling book, despite the, the fact it's an allegory and you have talking animals and there's a lot about sort of inherently comic about that. There's also, yeah, I guess, I guess it's something to do with the deep seriousness about the situation Orwell was writing about that it sort of it doesn't stray too much or doesn't embrace too much the the sort of potential comedy of the of the situation now i think for my part i'm probably more of a naturally a comic writer than orwell generally i think my first novel feeding time was a very dark comedy about an old folks home so i knew that ultimately that side of it would creep in and then as i started to write the novel and i started to construct the plot and when i realized that it was going to be significantly longer than Animal Farm. I think it comes in at about not quite double the length, but not far off, in large part because I think the situation I was writing about had a lot more strands, a lot more kind of interlinked narratives than the situation Orwell was writing about. But I realized if we are going to then get to the sort of 250 page length, it's going to have to be it's going to have to be kind of entertaining to not wear out the patience for adult readers for talking animals. So, and this was actually in conversation with my editors at Galley Beggar. They encouraged me in later drafts to lean a little bit into the kind of expansive comical tone and uh, lean a little bit away from Orwell. So what's been happening on Manor Farm since the close of Animal Farm? I'm a little bit vague about the early decades. We're, we're, we're several decades later, but the situation as we find it when the book opens is that over the, the decades since, um, since Napoleon's rule, uh, Animal Farm, which has been renamed as it is at the end of, of Orwell's book, is renamed Manor Farm again. And it has essentially become a, a petting zoo. It is, so it has stopped being a kind of a producing farm and it has started uh, welcoming visitors. It started um, essentially converted into, I guess, a service economy rather than a rather than a producing economy. Um, so it's well, there's it's welcome new arrivals. So you have different species on the farm now, most notably the the alpacas who have been there for several generations now and live um, alongside alongside the sheep. And it also has the the windmill again, which was um, which was a big part of the first book. But the windmill is essentially run by the dogs now, and the dogs are selling the electricity from the windmill to neighboring farms in order to support this economic transition, I guess, to Manor Farm. It's also become something of a democracy. So whereas, obviously, by the end of Orwell's book, it was a, uh, it was a totalitarian state, now it's very much a two-party system. Uh, you have the, um, the animalists who are the sort of the descendants, I guess, of, um, of Napoleon and his, um, and his, his pigs, but with a very much a, a reinvented, a very much a modernized um, edge to them. And then you have the Jonesists who take their name from Mr. Jones, from Farmer Jones, who was the, the deposed farmer in, in Orwell's book. And they're much more your parsimonious uh, traditionalist uh, pigs. So as the book opens, we have Buttercup, who is the, uh, the animalist uh, first beast, as he's known. And he has just won a record sixth term in, um, in charge of, of Manor Farm. And he is um, being celebrated by the other animals because he's finally opening of reopening the big barn, which uh, was a very important kind of gathering place for the animals in Orwell's book. 
ad had fallen into disrepair in the intervening decades and has now been completely revamped as a um, an information centre and gift shop for the petting zoo. As you said, it's obviously it's um, a book about talking animals and it's a parable. <laughs> it's a it's a um, allegory. So in some respects, it's sort of weird to talk about characters. But um, if the book does have a protagonist, then it's it's probably Martha the Goose. So mm. tell us something about Martha. So Martha is a young Brent goose uh, who lives on the farm. The um, the geese, again, it's a sort of a new addition to the farm, or at least a, um, a slightly retooled addition. Uh, the geese, in many ways, are the, the journalists of Manor Farm. And it, was, it took me a while to, to decide how the, the journalists, how media would be represented. And I settled on the geese in large part because of my very limited experience with geese was when I was a student at York University. Uh, York is a quite a, at least when I was there, it's, um, it's developed quite a bit since, but it was a, a quite a small campus based around uh, a lake, uh, which had quite a large population of geese. And the one thing I thought was quite remarkable about geese is that alone, they can be quite dignified, noble, intelligent creatures. And yet sometimes they would charge around campus in these kind of honking packs and would become the most kind of absurd, ridiculous animals you could imagine. And there was something about that, this kind of <laughs> the potential for for nobility, the potential for intelligence, and also the potential for this, I guess, um, pack, the sort of braying pack mentality that, um, that appealed to me. So one of the things I, I didn't want to do, and I think... I struggled to do a little bit more than perhaps Orwell did, is to kind of taint every animal with the same brush or more or less the same brush in a way. So, you know, all geese are like this, all sheep are like that. Because I think, for example, you know, I think you just look at the at the British media scene. I mean, there are some incredibly toxic and poisonous and destructive journalists, uh, you know, some of whom go on to become prime minister. And yet, on the other hand, there are there are people like, um, I mean, I think, for example, Carol Cadwallader, who, you know, seem to have a real sort of, um, I guess, quite traditional, uh, noble view of the of the profession of journalism. And, and yes, yeah, so I also wanted to make sure that there was, you know, there's this the potential for both. So Martha is this young goose. She's, you know, she's um, a little bit of an outsider because most of the geese on the farm are grey lags and she's a Brent goose. So already she's a little bit smaller, um, a little bit of an outcast. And I guess Martha is, you know, she is what you want from those, from your journalist. She, you know, she sniffs out stories and she is tenacious, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't let them go. And, um, you know, she tries at least as well as she can to, to get to the, the heart of the matter. I mean, you mentioned a couple of types of journalists there, but you also do have, or you used to have journalists like Hunter S. Thompson, don't you? Right. Yeah. 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 And um, I think, <laughs> I mean, Hunter S. Thompson, again, there's a certain sort of homage to him uh, in this book uh, under, in the character of Duke, who is the, uh, this kind of old, slightly outcast, um, sort of vaguely mystic goose who um, also, yeah, plays quite a, quite a significant part in the story. And just one of the characters I wanted to talk about in some detail, I guess. Um, and then obviously, we'll, uh, when we get to talk about allegorical parts of the book in the second half, we'll definitely touch on some more. But um, the other sort of major character is Cassie the Mule, and mm. she has like a sort of 
significant connection to the previous book, which I don't know whether we can really talk about, mm-hmm. but tell us something about who Cassie is. Yeah, so Cassie is, yeah, so she is, she's, she, as you say, she's a mule and uh, in this kind of, um, in the, in this new petting zoo environment, she gives, she gives rides to the human children in, in little carts. And then as the farm faces certain economic difficulties, the, the pigs in all their wisdom decide that she's going to start allowing uh, children to ride bareback on her as well if they uh, if they pay enough. And she, uh, I mean, I guess in in a sense, she's a bit of an outlier in that she doesn't represent a particular group in a way. She is um, she is a a character on a quest. Um, so she she grew up uh, without knowing who her father was and has um, basically spends the uh, a large part of the book trying to um, trying to find out who who her father is now anybody who knows anything about mules might start getting an instinct as to as to who her father who her father might be and if you know the if you know animal farm in particular the, the bells may be ringing but she was definitely in a sense my opportunity to not only to connect to the original book which I do for, uh, I guess, reasons of homage, but also um, because one very important element of the book is this idea of knowing history and knowing the facts of history and not sort of not allowing um, nefarious elements to twist the facts of history for for their own ends. So so what Martha does spend spends a lot of the time doing is essentially going through the um, what might be considered the lost archives of the of the farm, so this is out on the the quarry uh, where originally the stone for the, uh, the the original windmill was um, was mined, which has now essentially become the dumping ground of uh, of, of a manor farm. So anything that the the pigs and the other animals are done with, you know, whether that be old newspapers, magazines, old machinery, things like that, all gets dumped on the on the on the quarry. And so for Cassie, when she goes there, she gets this opportunity essentially to peel back the layers of Manor Farm's history one by one. And, and in doing so, she acquires a certain knowledge of the, of the farm um, and a certain understanding of what's been going on that uh, the other animals for whom the history is much more fuzzy don't have. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Adam Biles and we're talking about his book, Beasts of England. And Adam, in the first half, you mentioned the Jonesists, and maybe it's a little on the nose to say the the new animalists, but um <laughs> these two two parties sort of seem to represent Thatcherism and Blairism. And I just wanted to talk more in general about you know, using these animals to represent various different strands of contemporary politics in the novel. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a funny thing because when I first started writing it, I thought the approach to take would be to make it as non-specific as possible. Because one thing that was becoming very clear to me um, in the time when I was building up to write it and as I was writing it was that there are a lot of similarities to, um, a lot of, I guess, sort of um, how to say it, a lot of trends to how sort of how perhaps democracies get corrupted and how populist leaders take control and keep control. So you can, you know, it's not, of course, everywhere is sort of context specific, but you could look at what happened in the UK with Brexit and the election of Johnson. You can look at what happened in the US with Trump. You can look at what's been going on in India with Modi or in Turkey with Erdogan or, uh, you know, in, in Brazil um, as well. And you can definitely, uh, there's there's definitely a lot of parallels. So I was very conscious that I didn't want it to be a book just about um, about the British political scene. And then I went back to Animal Farm and I realised one thing which is incredibly interesting is it's a very, very specific book. It is about the, uh, the Russian Revolution and the rise to power of Stalin. And in many cases, characters can be mapped almost directly onto historical figures. And indeed, Orwell himself said, for example, the, the famous scene at the end where they, the animals looked from pig to man and man to pig and couldn't tell which was which. He said he felt often that was misread because for him, he not exactly as a moment of harmony. He didn't intend it as a moment of harmony between the pigs and the humans, but he intended it to be based very much on the Tehran conference and this moment of kind of, um, of new discord in a way. And it suddenly struck me that actually, in a funny kind of way, you don't achieve, let's say, you know, universal truth or universal relevance through being as vague as possible, but in a weird kind of way through being as specific as possible. So when I when I had this realization, I then allowed myself to lean into um, a lot of the uh, direct parallels with British politics in particular, and allowed and that allowed me certain jokes and, and as well on, on you know, at the expense of of um, certain people who rubbed me up the wrong way. But I would also say and that it's sort of it's a bit of a fool's errand to try and map it exactly onto, okay, this person is this person, that person is that person, because 
it's never going to map exactly. And there are certain instances where I intentionally make it unmap, if uh, if that's if that's a word. But yeah, it sort of it definitely did that. That realization that specificity was the the way to go um, was definitely quite liberating in the composition of the book. Well, maybe we should um, match that idea to the character of Jumbo then, who mm. definitely seems directly mapped onto maybe a couple of people, but um, mm. it seems pretty obvious. Yeah, I mean, so Jumbo, um, I guess it, it is sort of an amalgam in many ways of um, of Johnson and Trump. You know, if you were to draw the the Venn diagram of their different characters, then you know the areas where the two circles overlapped would be a lot of the source for Jumbo's characteristics. So he he is a pig who has been in a kind of kind of semi-exile from the farm. Not not sort of, you know, he hasn't been banished, but his his party, the Joneses, had sort of sent him off to work at the Wielden Union of Farmers as a way of essentially getting him off of the scene, of stopping him making too much trouble. And as soon as things take a sort of a turn for the worse on the farm, Jumbo makes a reappearance. And Jumbo is, he is narcissistic. He is amoral. He is, I'd say probably wily more than intelligent and he has he has that capacity which i think both johnson and trump have which is i never would have thought this until recent years but has proven incredibly powerful which is to lean into the lie that you tell utterly shamelessly and so you know if somebody you know if if you say something is white and somebody shows you incontrovertible evidence that it's black up until Johnson and Trump, I can't think of any politicians in um, in sort of Western democracies in, in sort of recent decades who would then go on insisting no that it was that it was white. You know, most politicians, you know, even the you know hugely gifted ones like Blair or Thatcher or people like that would find a way to say, oh, actually, yeah, maybe you know you are right that it is black, but these are the reasons I said it was white, and they would you know they would find a way to incorporate the the change of information into into their own narrative. Whereas with Johnson and Trump, they just, as I say, lean into it so much and that it almost takes on a reality of its own. It almost creates a kind of cognitive dissonance in observers to say, well, okay, but he is so confident in what he's saying. Maybe, maybe you know, I've got the facts in front of me, but maybe I am wrong. Um, and I think this is something which becomes particularly powerful in the in the sort of the modern internet age in which we're living in. Well, you raise the internet and something that happens in the novel is there's an arrival of a enormous murmuration of starlings mm. and which come and take over the farm and <laughs> land and sort of whisper in the various different animals' ears. And then we sort of find out that well, this has been happening in different farms all over the place. And this seems to represent the influence of of the internet and social media in particular. Um, might we even say Twitter in particular? Um, tell us something about the starlings in the novel. Yeah, so um, as you say, this comes it happens very early on during the first meeting in the um, in the in the big barn, and this was an odd one for me because I knew from the start that I couldn't write this novel in you know, about contemporary politics without dealing with the effect of the internet and yeah, particularly Twitter, but I think more broadly speaking, sort of social networks uh, in general. And the question was how to do that because. Um, one thing that um, was, you know, more or less the case in Orwell's time when he created this uh, framework, which I was trying to kind of put to my own use, was that more or less everybody lived on the same informational plane, let's say. 
And that just wasn't the case for, that hasn't been the case for like the last couple of decades. Like I think it's changed a little bit now or is changing in as much as the internet has become such a part of our lives that we don't so much talk about, for example, meat space and cyberspace in the way that we maybe did five or five or 10 years ago. But I had to reckon with this idea that, you know, you had the the groundlings, you had all this stuff which was going on, I guess, in the sort of in sort of to borrow from the parlance of a lot of uh, people online, the kind of the the legacy uh, farm, if you like. And then I needed to have some way of capturing this kind of nebulous, uh, gravity-defying, fast-moving, difficult-to-understand realm that was having such a big influence on our societies. And it did take me a while, rather. It's amazing now when I look back, because the day that I went online and I saw the logo of Twitter as it was then, and the idea came to me, it just seemed like the most obvious idea to have this realm embodied by um, this murmuration of starlings. And yet, yeah, it took me quite a while. It took me quite a while to come to it. But again, it was one of those things, a bit like the idea for the book originally, that as soon as I had the idea, it sort of set off this sort of firework of um, firework display of of ideas and related kind of concepts and ways I could use it and fun I could have with it that uh, that I knew that was that, that was the way to go. Well, it certainly works better than a, than a, a sky full of flying X's anyway, which definitely <laughs> well, well, quite. <laughs> um, to finish this off then, can I get you to read us a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I mentioned the 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 opening scene. So when I wanted to when I wanted to channel Orwell, um, if for readers who who remember Animal Farm, you might you might remember that it starts with a kind of gathering of animals in um, in the big barn. Uh, so they they're gathering because Old Major, the boar, the kind of amalgam of Karl Marx and and Lenin, has sort of has had a um, a dream which he wants to tell the animals about. And so I, I I knew quite early on that I, I wanted to begin with a similar gathering. Um, and so in this case, the extract I'm going to read is where the animals come together. So it's a little after the, it's a few pages into the book. It's the animals are gathering for the official opening of the new big barn. Tonight was the big barn's official opening. And Buttercup had let it be known that two surprise finishing touches would be unveiled. One on the western wall and the other on the vast east window. Both were hidden behind tarpaulins and had been the subject of much excited speculation among Manor Farm's animals. On this Sunday evening in late summer, the animals were pleased with Buttercup, and he was very pleased with himself. When he trotted into the big barn, accompanied by Cosmo the Owl, his dependable quartermaster, Buttercup was welcomed with the clatter of hooves and trotters and the beating of wings. Buttercup quieted the gathering with a swipe of his trotter. Now's not the time for speeches, he said. And yet, as we stand together beneath the beautiful vaulted roof of our new big barn, I see not just a building, but a symbol of everything we have achieved, together. For today on Manor Farm, rest days are no longer as rare as hen's teeth. Today on Manor Farm, our mule gives no more than seven rides a day and never to a human child over ten years old. Today on Manor Farm, we have abolished undignified costumes for all animals. Today on Manor Farm, those animals that can work are justly rewarded and those that cannot are cared for. Today on Manor Farm, we summoned the compassion and solidarity to help the animals of Shore Farm overthrow the tyrant Percy Cox. Unsure whether to boo the tyrant or cheer his overthrow, the gathered animals settled for a kind of unruly lowing. Buttercup might have said this was not the moment for speeches. Nevertheless, he continued to deliver a version of the very speech he had given daily in the week preceding the annual choosing two months earlier, on the summer solstice. That day, Buttercup's drove of animalists had seen off the opposing Jones's drove for the sixth time in a row, proving, as Buttercup took much relish in declaring, 
almost every time he opened his mouth, that Manor Farm had turned definitively away from the old-fashioned, nostalgic, penny-pinching human lovers of the Jonesists and towards the nimble, generous, welcoming embrace of modern animalism. As Buttercup let the lowing fade, Ribbons, the new leader of the Jonesist pig, watched from his comfortable armchair in the big barn's gallery with a look of grudging admiration. But Ribbons, too, had his reasons to be smug. In the recent contest to lead his drove, he had bested Curly, a baston pig with a squashed face and a thick pelt of fur, which, from a distance, often saw him mistaken for a sheep. Curly was Ribbon's superior in intelligence and experience, but he was his inferior in looks and charm. For Ribbons was a young, handsome boar, tall when on his hind legs, with a daintily curved snout, a muscular chest and a pinched belly. And though Curly's more traditional Jonesist views were more in line with the rest of the drove, Ribbons had convinced them that, up against Buttercup, it would take looks and charm to win. And after six consecutive losses, winning was all that counted. Buttercup went on. Which is why it is an enormous honour for me to be among you this evening, to celebrate the reopening of the Big Barn, and to reveal not one, but two monuments, which I believe go some small way to honouring our collective endeavour. Buttercup nodded. The first tarpaulin fell. The animals gasped, cawed and trilled. The bricks of the western wall, bare since the day they'd been laid, were now covered ground to roof with a splendid mural. The painting was aglow with bright colours and vivid depictions of several dozen episodes from Manor Farm's long history. That's old Major, bleated one sheep, pointing with a hoof at a stately-looking boar halfway up the painting. The leader of the Great Rebellion. Don't you mean Napoleon? a magpie asked. Who? answered the sheep with a glare. Look, that's when the foxes were chased from Manor Farm, clucked a hen. And there's Traviata, simpered Clive the Bullock, selling off the last plough. Is that the siege of Pinchfield? a young alpaca asked, indicating a scuffle just above the doorway. <coughs> Imbecilic long neck, snorted Curly. Can't you see that those are foxwood colours? Foxwood? Pinchfield, said Balmoral, the roe-deer patriarch. Surely, Baston, those two putrid farms are much of a muchness anyway. Curly smiled wryly at this. In the background, the familiar silhouette of the old farmhouse picked out against the bright blue sky of an idyllic summer morning. And above it all, looming over the outbuildings and the animals, its tower soaring so high that it tapered almost to a point near the roof of the barn, was the windmill. A sly optical trick made it seem as if the brilliant white sails were folding the farm and its inhabitants in four caring maternal arms. It's magnificent, sighed Marguerite the Holstein, her eyes welling with tears. Buttercup pushed on. In short, brothers and sisters, he patted at his forehead with a handkerchief. A strange affectation since, like all of his kind, he had no sweat glands. In short, we have truly made sure, for the first time in history, that our farm lives up to the eternal motto of our heroic founders. That... Now he gestured at the east window of the big barn. On cue, the second tarpaulin fell. High up on the glass, the farm's old motto had been engraved in blocky, bevelled letters. Seen from inside the barn, the words read back to front, but most of the literate animals recognised them at once. Buttercup read them aloud. All animals are more equal than others. So I've been talking to Adam Biles. We've been talking about his book, Beasts of England, which is out now in the UK from Galley Beggar. Adam, thanks so much for telling me about it. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. 
The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.